Thoughts on Reform podcast and delighted you chose to join us. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. Oh, hello. And Drew Tavendale. How do So, today we're going to talk a bit about Sherlock Holmes and why now, in space year 2019, do we turn our attention to Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's consulting detective from 1887? Well, mainly because I like him, but also because of Mickey Mouse. Uh, the latter will require some further explanation, I suppose, but the former probably won't. Uh, <laughs> You've lost me already. <laughs> oh, so yeah, just cut to the mouse bit, please. <laughs> well, Conan Doyle's stories were popular from the outset and perhaps problematically so for Conan Doyle, but have remained an iconic pillar of pop culture for well over a century. And part of that popularity brings us back to Disney, nearly. Uh, what brought Sherlock to mind recently was the recent addition in the USA of the very earliest form of Mickey Mouse in the public domain. Surprising mm. this, as Disney have long fought tooth and nail for increasing copyright extension terms. Now, it's not that clear-cut. I mean, it's not really a recognisable form of Mickey Mouse that's there, and there's plenty of other ways for a company that has near-infinite money and near-infinite lawyers to stymie anything that they might see as a threat. But it did remind me of the value public domain holds to culture as a whole, and Sherlock Holmes, I think, is a pretty solid example of this. Now, there's some caveats to this. Uh, there's some storied legal battles of who actually held the rights to Conan's estate, which is an interesting little tale in itself. Well, to me anyway, but out with our scope today. Uh, but we can broadly say that the character of Sherlock Holmes is now public domain, which opens up a lot of interesting takes on it, from plucking him into a quirky police procedure on things like Elementary, or turning him into Doctor Who in the Beeb's Sherlock, <laughs> or various uh, films such as Mr. Holmes, uh, Guy Ritchie's films, one of which we'll speak of today, Game of Shadows, and the recent comedy Holmes and Watson, which no one involved with seems to want to speak of ever again. <laughs> Which no one seems to have seen. Yes. Uh, but there's no shortage of more traditional adaptations through the years. A particular shout out for me must go to the excellent ITV series with Jeremy Brett from the 80s. That was at least part of what drew me into the character back in the day. But uh, first off today, we're going to look at an early entry in the series of World War II era outings with the prosaically titled Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Perhaps Drew, before you were kicking into that, any thoughts in general about Sherlock Holmes? Are you- I was thinking about it, you're talking about like, being like a cultural icon and it's Sherlock Holmes considered to be the most adapted character ever, yes. running into the several hundreds, I guess, yes. is the, <laughs> the largely agreed upon count. And like, yeah, it, it hugely pervades all sorts of media, um, mm-hmm. and it's a, a huge cultural thing that's made its way into and lots of entertainment, which you might expect, but it's become part of for instance, computer operating systems, the program Sherlock for Mac OS or whatever it was at the time, System 9 or something, and mm. then being stolen and being called Watson and, uh, and just all these things that, like names that you pop up in other places that you, I just thought, you know, the general insult of like, no mm-hmm. Sherlock and things like that, just mm-hmm. totally absorbed in pop culture. And then I realised, preparing for this podcast, that I was like, I am aware of so many of the tropes of Sherlock Holmes, so many mm. of the stories and things. And unless you count the Ladybird version of the Hound of the Baskervilles, <laughs> <laughs> I have never until. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not talking about having read it recently. <laughs> um. Yeah. As a very young child, read the Ladybird uh, version of Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> cool. A book based on 
the BBC children's spin-off series, the um, Baker Street Boys, um, and having played a couple of the Frogware video games, although they're probably much more recent, uh, until Guy Ritchie's first Sherlock Holmes film, I realised I had never read Sherlock Holmes, I had never seen a Sherlock Holmes adaptation, yet still had absorbed almost everything about the character regardless. Yeah. <laughs> I find it kind of odd. And it's still now only ever seen three adaptations, both the Guy Ritchie films and the one I'm about to talk about. But mm. it's so pervasive that you can absorb so much of that without having ever seen it. I mean, I've seen clips of Basil Rathbone and I suspect I've seen clips of that ITV one you're talking about, Scott, which mm. sounds familiar now that you mention it. But for all the oh, Philip Holmes is so famous, never seen one before, before what it was, but it was the first hey. Guy Ritchie film 29, so 10 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, it can feel like the sort of thing you you just think you've seen because you've you've absorbed enough of it just from yeah, general culture exactly. anyway. But yeah, yeah, no, I read books as a kid and I've uh, picked up the odd thing here and there. But yeah, I've always quite liked them. Greg, uh, uh, literally what Drew said minus the Ladybird book. Um, <laughs> I, purely by cultural osmosis, I am. Yeah familiar enough in passing with Sherlock Holmes then I too realised the, the only, I've read none of the books and the only adaptations I've seen screen adaptations are the two Guy Ritchie films and the Basil Rathbone um, starring effort that we'll talk about tonight, so almost exactly the same as Drew on this one um, it is startling how much of something you can you can come to an understanding of purely by um Purely by proximity to the material and the sort of the the general pervasiveness uh, of of it, but um, yes, I am. Well, we shall talk about it in passing, I'm sure. But I am more inclined now to seek out more of the the material after um, after watching one of these at least. Good. Well, I suppose Drew, why don't you take us back not to this the complete start, but it's not far off it with uh, what's this 1939? Was it uh, Adventures of Sherlock Holmes? Yes, um, let's start for Basil Rathbone, although they, again, had been pretty much continuously adapted in one way or another since mm-hmm. the, story, the books came out, because they'd been yeah. popular from the beginning. Basil Rathbone's is perhaps the most famous incarnation of Sherlock Holmes, not surprisingly, I suppose, since he played the great detective in a series of 14 films in only eight years, mm-hmm. forever linking him with the role and the role with him. His second appearance as Doyle's detective is perhaps the most well-known and certainly amongst the most lasting in impact as it is Alfred L. Werker's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes that gave the world the immortal line Elementary, my dear Watson. Mm. Based on William Gillette's 1899 play Sherlock Holmes, though with apparently little resemblance making adaptation a not entirely appropriate description, rather than directly on Arthur Conan Doyle's writing, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes nonetheless has many of the most familiar aspects of the stories including a late Victorian London setting, you know, no 1920s or Nazis here, as would come to be seen in later entries in the series. Dr. Watson, played here as something of a buffoon by Nigel Bruce, housekeeper Mrs. Hudson, Mary Gordon, and Holmes' nemesis, the Napoleon of crime, Professor Moriarty, George Zucco. The film begins with Holmes' frustration at the devious Moriarty being acquitted of murder due to insufficient evidence, and Moriarty's decision to manipulate Holmes and so occupy his brilliant, challenge-hungry mind that he will be entirely distracted from the true crime, stealing the crown jewels from the Tower of London. Though, personally, I happen to consider murder a considerably graver offence than snaffling some polished rocks and shiny hats. (laughs) To this end, Moriarty dispatches Arthur Hole's offensively badly-accented Basic to send a letter... (laughs) 
which causes much consternation and suspicion in the Brandon family and leads to Ida Lapinos and Brandon visiting Holmes and pleading for help. Holmes agrees to investigate, but things are complicated by the fact the man in charge of the security of the Crown Jewels has asked for the detective's assistance at the same time. Now, for all the reputation that this film had, and to a degree has, it's all right and nothing more, and I was actually pretty disappointed by that. The pacing is brisk, it's enjoyable enough for its 81 minutes, and Basil Rathbone is thoroughly entertaining. I mean, it's no mystery why he became the cinematic Sherlock Holmes, beyond Mm -hmm. mere repetition, but it's pretty lightweight in terms of Holmes' legendary abilities. Aside from a sketch of a bird prompting a knowledge of avian anatomy and the subsequent investigation, which actually seemed wholly unnecessary when he could simply have said, looks like an albatross to me and be done with it. (laughs) There is little evidence of the deductive and reasoning abilities that are what made the character such a cultural touchstone, with most action being reactionary and simply following the clues in a way which any vaguely competent detective could have done. Moriarty is also frustratingly absent for much of the film, leaving much of the time to be filled wondering how Edward James almost went back in time to be cast as a South American hitman. She's not going to live forever, Holmes. But then again, who does? And also, why Ida Lupino's eyebrows seem to be extending almost to her ears. (laughs) It's just the way it was. This last being something I was unable to take my eyes off of. Are are they escaping? What's going on? Why are they so close to her head? Their hairline? (laughs) Yeah, influential perhaps, but disagreeably ordinary. Yeah, I, I was a little disappointed with myself. But, uh, I've not seen uh, any of the Basil Rathbone stuff, actually. It was one of, the, one of the little gaps in my knowledge. It was partly why I uh, decided to go into this one. It's really good when uh, Basil Rathbone's on the screen, and I like the absolute scenery-chewing dedication that uh, uh, George Zuku brings to Professor Moriarty's role. <laughs> and... Uh, his, his strange abuse of his uh, man-servant. It's like, I hate you so much. You hate me too. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely the I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> really unnecessarily <laughs> cruel. Yeah. Uh, um, like, so, yeah. You'd have offed me before now if you'd had the chance, and, and I hate you. <laughs> so strange. It's like, you hate me, don't you? No, no, sir, not at all. Of course you do. Yeah, Your hatred for me is only matched by my, my disgust for you. So yeah. what? It's <laughs> so strange. Um, <laughs> all right, Moriarty, we've all had a few. Chill out, man. <laughs> but there's, there's just not enough of that because he largely disappears for most of the film. Mm. Yeah, and when they're not on the screen, it's uh, it's bad. I don't. The Nigel Bruce's Doctor Watson take is is okay. Watson's always been in the books as the the guy, that, an exposition sounding board. You know, he's someone that, that Holmes can explain his brilliance to. But that over time, before getting revisited a bit in recent years, tended to. Uh, Bottlerize him into just becoming an absolute idiot mm. uh, for the most yeah, part. Which, Brr, is, Holmes, which is so very much at odds with the way that Jude Law's character is written in the mm. Guy ones, which I like. So, yeah. You can understand, like, he's more of a foil for Holmes, and while you can see why he's frustrated, you also believe the friendship there and why he would sort of stick around, you know. Yeah. Whereas in this, is like, well, why would you put up with that um, <laughs> abuse? Mm. Oh, it's because you're an idiot and you're played like an idiot. And it's- <laughs> you're a, you're a, you are an incorrigible bungler. Yeah. <laughs> which which he which he to to which he responds in the correct mode to begin with. He's a bit he's a bit upset about that, and then bizarrely he comes round to thinking, 
Oh, actually, he's got my number. Yes. <laughs> it's Aww. a fair cop, Gov. Oh, Holmes, actually, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me all week. <laughs> I think uh, it is that, that Moriarty's treatment of um, uh, Basic is... <sighs> Is bizarre at that point in the film that you mentioned, Scott. And the only reason I can I can imagine for it is that they've 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 taken too far the notion of everything about Moriarty being the mirror image of Holmes, including his relationship with with Basic in this case. So so where Holmes treats uh, Watson with some affection, er, ergo. <laughs> <laughs> Moriarty must be a complete dick to Basic <laughs> for no appreciably good reason. Yeah. It's not Basic. It's um uh what's his oh. name? Dawes. Yeah. I think Dawes. Basic. Oh, the, have I got yeah. that wrong? Basic's Basic the henchman that he sends off to do the one. That oh, that he sends off to. Yes. Okay. Yeah, sorry. That, that's sorry. another thing about films of this era because it's the same in some of the early Hitchcock stuff as well. It's like we we need, we need to get a working class salt of their person for this, but we can't possibly hire one of them to act. So no. let's get someone in from Rada with a cut glass accent going, "Oh, look, Salami, I'm a I'm a cockney now, I'm a governor." That guy's American, which is why it's even worse. Um, yeah. Because like you can't do the accent, they're not familiar with the accent. I suspect. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of lot of quite bad accent work going on, <laughs> which really does take out of a lot of it. This felt. This was just campy enough that actually, I I found this quite enjoyable. I, I'm guessing yes. by your reactions, I possibly enjoyed this more than 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 both of you. It's got the good grace to not stick around. As as with a great many films of that period, it's not necessarily the most sophisticated beast. Like yeah. Mor- Moriarty's devious plot for the crime of the century is about as sophisticated <laughs> as Stovey's. Yeah, it's basically turn, turn the, the lights shaving. out. And, yes, turn the lights out and hide behind a table before <laughs> someone else turns them back on. <laughs> That's uh, as as you pointed. The most brilliant criminal mind of his generation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the most brilliant criminal mind of his generation. Oh, that's his feet there poking out from underneath the curtain. As, as you pointed you out, you embrace the darkness. <laughs> I was going to adopted it. I was born in it, formed of it. You said something, Drew, and I've completely forgotten what it was now in the interim that I agreed with entirely. <laughs> Scott's impersonation threw me for a loop. We're talking about Moriarty, so. Um... Oh, oh, oh yes, the, the sort of the, the notion that. The notion that these <laughs> terribly, terribly contrived and premeditated murders are somehow just a distraction to someone trying to steal a diamond yeah. yes. <laughs> is quite is quite baffling. And and yes, there are none of the uh, there are the none of the really the traits of the deductive reasoning for which um, the character of Holmes became uh, so renowned. And the other film that we'll talk about tonight. Is is I would argue or perhaps, perhaps too too far in the opposite <laughs> direction. Yes, but there was something about this and all of its sort of um, shocking uh, Dutch angled um, primacy <laughs> that uh, I, I really quite enjoyed. Um, yeah. Very much an artifact of its time, but I was quite pleasantly surprised to see how sort of esoteric and sort of quite unhinged Rathbone's Holmes was. The the scene where he sort of obs- he's obsessed over plucking a, a a violin, going through the chromatic scale to see if there's a note which will annoy a housefly. Actually, was- referenced in the first Guy Ritchie film as well, which was quite amusing. Is it? Oh. Yeah, I rewatched the first one again before I watched Game of Shadows for tonight. And- see, I, I remember very little of that. And he's um, there's a scene where he's playing um, discordantly this violin to try and annoy a fly. Uh, uh. Reference to that this film, which is quite nice. So there are there are enough little touches there of of sort of. 
That sort of touches on a more modern sort of sensibility of humour, I suppose. Uh, in in some sense, there's enough of a there's enough of a connective thread there actually that I found I found some connection with the film, and um, I quite enjoyed it. It's made me, it's made me. I think largely Rathbone's portrayal more than anything else, as you pointed out, Scott, has made me want to perhaps watch a couple more of these. So I suspect that will be next in my uh, Holmesian education. But yes, I mean it's it's a very slight film. Uh, I mean, it pays short shrift to uh, to both Holmes and Moriarty in that sense, and that you would you would hope Holmes would be, you know, portrayed with some more depth, and his uh, his skills of deductive reasoning paid more than the sort of lip service they get here. And also, for all that Moriarty is supposed to be this the most arch of arch enemies in all of literary history, really, I suppose you you expect something of a titanic struggle betwixt the two, uh, and that is. Absolutely not what you're going to get. I mean, don't don't expect to come to any understanding of Moriarty's motivations or his skill set whatsoever. It's all a bit sort of, uh, it's all a bit Benny Hill in places. But uh, but nonetheless, I found myself quite enjoying it. Yes, and if I've been harsh in it, it's only because I love it. Um, but I, I did li- like an awful lot of it. I think it's uh, it's an easy watch for the eighty minutes, and mm. um, it's certainly not put me off going back and watching the rest of them when I can uh, when I can queue them up and get a, get a moment for it. Yeah, I, and. That's in the main purely because of Basil Rathborn. I'm not sure if the Deerstalker thing actually came from him or if it was uh, around in culture before him, but I think he certainly popularised that sort of mm-hmm. the look of Sherlock Holmes that, that stuck around for, well, best part of 100 years uh, before getting sort of a bit more a bit renovated in, in recent years. Um, yeah, hugely influential uh, well, series of films, I suppose. And this one was a nice, nice enough entry point to it, and I'm certainly interested to go and watch the rest of them. Well, you mentioned the Deerstalker, and with all all films of this era which involve men smoking pipes, just reminds me how much I want to be able to smoke a pipe, if mm. if not deal with the repercussions of lung cancer. <laughs> <laughs> At least you could. Vape. Now, there's a there's a surely there's a gap in the market for an authentic old school <laughs> pipe, which just happens to be. A vape, a vape pen. Do those things exist? I don't know. They probably do. They probably. I should probably do. buy one. There, there are vaping conventions, Craig. I'm sure there, if a vaping convention can exist, mm. because you know, well, fuck this world. But um, then I'm sure that it's full of novelty. There's got to be. Pens and someone get in touch with us, please. I can't be bothered googling it, but I do want to own one. I'll go. I'll go. I'll ask around in my uh, the favourite uh, vape shop that I pass when I drive through our broth, Puff Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that would be in our broth. On the tight leg. <laughs> it's especially appropriate. Our broth, the spiritual home of Sean Combs. <laughs> and vaping. It's like our broth, famous for smokies. They could have played on that, but no. We go for the terrible pun. Yes. <laughs> of uh, something that the the actual person stopped using only <laughs> twenty years ago now. <laughs> oh dear! Never mind. Right, uh, we'll go on then. We'll skip forward a a couple of few decades to Sherlock Holmes: A Game of Shadows, and uh, just to go back to the concept of different takes on the character then. Um, I, I'd hoped to revisit the first of the Guy Ritchie Helm uh, Holmes takes alongside this, but time and information technology yes. prevented that. <laughs> However, my recollection was that I much preferred the second entry anyway, uh, despite the absence of hilarious Mark Strongwigs. 
uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Holmes intrudes upon the recently married bliss of Jude Law's Dr. Watson when the pair become embroiled in the schemes of criminal mastermind Professor Moriarty, him again, uh, here played by Jared Harris. While there is, of course, a plot, and a plot within that plot, as it's a plot about plotting, the sentence has become so recursive that I need to take a bit of a break. Uh, what I'm getting at is there's not really a lot to be gained at giving you a blow-by-blow recap. Um, Sherlock believes Moriarty is up to no good. Moriarty confirms this during the show of mutual respect for each other's brilliance, which is mirrored in the uh, earlier sp- film which we spoke. Uh, Moriarty warns him to back off, lest inconveniences be visited upon him and Watson's, uh, the same way that they were visited upon Irene Adler, who I guess must have been Holmes's love interest in the first film. Yes. I- Yes. Can't recall. Uh, but yeah, her early doors fridging seems to provide Holmes with enough motivation to follow his nose on these schemes, eventually revealed to be of globe-spanning conflict puppeteering and stop them. Along the way, they'll team up with Naomi Rapace's fortune teller slash anarchist in the search of her brother and battle through a Europe on the verge of war with Moriarty's goons in hot pursuit, turning this into as much of an action film as a detective story. Well, a lot more of an action film than a detective story. Well, an action film <laughs> with some very slight detective overtones. Very slight. This came out to mixed reviews, but a fair amount of commercial success, which I suppose is at least somewhat indicative of an audience thumbs up. I can see why this might not be to someone's taste, but it is, however, right up my alley. It is frankly ridiculous. Witness Holmes's <laughs> urban camouflage suits, in which he's basically painting himself it's, the same colour as the background. He paints himself the same colour as the background, which makes this one of my favourite films ever, because he does it twice. And, <laughs> like, and it's, it's just joyous and wonderful. It's, it's laughable, but, well, that's the point. It's as much of a comedy film as it is an action film, with slight detective overtones. See also the evolution of Holmes's omniscient detective vision, as spoke of earlier, that somehow gives him the foresight of Cassandra and the martial arts skills of Tori Ja, to the point that he might as well be knee-off <laughs> off the Matrix. Congratulations, I suppose, to the filmmakers for making Baritsu seem even sillier than it was in Doyle's time. Speaking of which, while Guy Ritchie's treatment here isn't isn't more or less influenced by the Bukowski's film than any other post-2000 actioner, it does remind us of how long a shadow that film has cast, and I think maybe we'll need to go back and revisit these Matrix films just to (laughs) gauge their proper cultural impact. Ritchie throws a few curveball stylistics, particularly that bloke loading the large gun towards the end, which is very strangely shot. (laughs) Yeah. But in general, he's put together a pacey, punchy set of action sequences that I find to be an enjoyable ride. Still, that alone wouldn't carry the film, but there's some enjoyable dialogue threaded throughout the film, with some likeable interplay between Dowdy Jr. and Law, and a fine turn by Harris that's villainous without chewing quite so much scenery as our other examples spoken of today, but not that far off it. (laughs) Uh, Nomi Pass is quite hard done by, uh, but she manages to inject a decent amount of life into a character that deserves quite a bit more screen time than she's actually given. So, this is so over-the-top as to wander into no-man's land, but that's exactly why I like it. It is a crank film with a Sherlock Holmes skin, and there's nothing about that that I don't like, apart from the absence of Jason Statham. (laughs) I I had intended to close out this review by memorying the untimely death of the franchise, but I now see there's a sequel planned for next year, which rather takes the wind out of those sails. (laughs) Um, Still, it does give me a a reason to be very glad to watch Iron Man die in the next Avengers film. Uh, I was kind of wondering about that, because it just sort of ended, didn't it? And it felt like you could, without it outstaying as welcome, you could get another couple of those films quite easily. Mm. Yeah, Uh, but no, apparently apparently one is next year, according to IMDb, which I trust implicitly. Yes, I was aware that there was another one of these coming down the corncob pipeline, but um, upon revisiting this, I remember, I believe it was you guys I went to see this with, 
or so years ago um, and I remember coming out of it thinking very much the same as you Scott that I'd preferred it to the original about which I remember precisely sod all and then in watching it this time I enjoyed it a great deal less to be honest with you I found it I found it a bit of a slog um, all the sort of accoutrements of Guy Ritchie's needless over direction uh, were quite a took quite a toll on me this time round so that, that might have been to do with the fact that I've been knackered all week uh, when I sat down to watch this, it took me two attempts to watch it all the way through. But there are so many embellishments that Guy Ritchie places upon this in terms of his directorial style that I just found to be a distraction this time around. Um, the thing that I do really enjoy about this, and I recall enjoying about the first, and I think I, I wouldn't recommend anybody necessarily watches this cold without having watched the first film, because I think, from what I recall, the way in which the relationship uh, between Holmes and Watson is established in the first film. Uh, you, you kind of need to understand to inform the point at which it picks up in this. It picks up rather um, in this. I think that relationship is the perhaps the strongest part. There's a real sort of genuine sense of uh, love and affection uh, on Holmes's right. part towards Watson, which is far more touching than you have any right to expect from anything in a Guy Ritchie film. Um, he's not a director known for being particularly emotionally connected uh, and it says a lot for uh, Jude Law and Downey Jr.'s uh, performances that that pretty much carried this for me on this this viewing. Mm. There are there are other things to be enjoyed. I think Jared Harris is, is quite compelling as Moriarty but again, this suffers from a lack of understanding and development of that character. There is no sense necessarily that these two are locked in a particularly titanic struggle again so, more so than more so than the film we've already spoken about more so than the adventures of Sherlock Holmes but I still don't think I don't think it does a great deal to convey the battle of wits that it ought to have done and I yeah, think a lot, of t- a lot of telling and not a lot of showing um, it yeah. gets there I think only in that last scene the sort of well the, the kind of final battle between the two I think that works very well and sort of st- fits in with the rest of the film but the rest of it is yeah. a lot of yeah. there's not really a lot of uh, explanations given as to, as to why he is going to be such a massive criminal mastermind and it, yeah it does a bad job of that you would, you would want him to have been introduced in the first film this is a character that you need more than a film's, you know, more than the ring length of a film to understand the dynamic between the two if you're going to set it up to be this sort of titanic battle of wits. He is in the first film, but he's a little shadowy figure in the background who's sending Irene Adler um, mm. on jobs and it's overdubbed with Jared Harris's voice, actually, mm. to make the two match. But it feels like there should be a, a film in between the two. Yeah. So in the the first film, it's like, there's a shadow guy in the background, what's going on? Yeah. The second film, there's another main plot with, um, with Holmes sort of hearing things. Yes, yeah. here's about, this guy manipulating events from behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah. and then you get to Game of Shadows where um, Moriarty's now fully out in the open Holmes knows who he is, he knows who Holmes is and then he realises how evil this guy is because he's quite willing to yeah. the entire continent at war. There's a, there's, yeah. there's a whole film in that crazy board that he has where he's drawing all the dots together, that should have been a film by itself Yes, yeah, yeah. 100% <laughs> It just doesn't feel enough to be dropped into this film and told, right, this, this guy's the absolute antithesis of Sherlock Holmes and the worst person in the world, go it doesn't. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel natural. Um, and I think anyone would have a tough time delivering, delivering that. To be fair, I mean, Richie makes a decent enough fist of it, and in the sort of 
predominantly action mode that this that these films have been perhaps bafflingly but not necessarily unrewardingly yeah. presented um he he makes a decent fist of it uh, i i will grant him that but uh, i yeah i i wasn't as fond of this this time around but it, i was aware of the fact that we were expecting a sequel a, a third entry um uh, originally been spoken about some time ago and I was aware that it was coming down the pipeline it hasn't put me off kind of wanting to see that because mm-hmm. I kind of, I think Downey Jr's at a place in the Avengers having watched Endgame where it feels like he's run out of it feels like he's running on fumes with the character of Iron Man a bit now and I kind of want to see him do something different and I want I want him to have that sort of presence that he had in in the first couple of Iron Man or certainly the first or the third Iron Man film I want him. I want to see that invested in in this character again. I would. I would love for them to. I would love for them to knock it out of the park. But we will. Uh, we will see. I say again. I think all three of us were the same. weren't hugely enamoured of the first film. I found the second one a lot more enjoyable. I rewatched the first film mm. before rewatching this and found I enjoyed it a great deal more. Well, see, I need to rewatch it. Yes, this is what I've been left with as this compulsion to go back and watch that again. Yeah. Now. Um, and then. This the game Shadows. I I enjoyed it pretty much as much as I did um, when I first saw it. So that's good. I just, yeah. I just thought it was really fun. Um, and it's sort of it, it does. There's not like a huge through line for the first the second one in terms of like you couldn't you don't have to have seen the first one to fully appreciate the second one. I don't think. But to what you were saying, Craig, about mm. some of the character arc also. So some of the story of Irene Adler, a bit of the Moriarty in the background, and there's the. Um, the marriage of Watson to Kelly Riley's character because that's starting in the first one and he's getting ready to move out to move in with her mm. um, and then you know and Holmes is always trying to kind of sabotage it probably because he's terrified of being alone yeah. that seems to be the way that character's written but it doesn't um, but then it just like the second one kind of it's, I thought it was actually going to do it more and I'd forgotten how much he did it, but it kind of tries to subvert its own expectation too because in the first film you have that bit of him of narrating how the, the fight is going to go, what he's going to do. Mm. Second film starts off with one that that happens, but the show don't tell. They don't have the narration on it. They're like, ah, right, okay. So they're expecting people to be familiar with it from the first film. Mm. Um, anybody new can pick up. But then the next time it happens, there is a narration. I thought, oh, right. But then kind of subvert that wee bit by yeah. having no mere repass actually beat him um, mm-hmm. or like throw the knife and kind of throw his plans and then the nice wee touch at the end where you realise that Moriarty's doing exactly the same thing mm-hmm. and that's kind of battle of wills in that way in the match of the minds I like that Man, most of your criticism I don't necessarily disagree with but I don't find most of them didn't bother I just find it a very entertaining film Jude Law and Rob Downey Jr. are great Jared Harris is great any minor issues with structure and plot mm. for instance like you see how clever and devious Moriarty is, the things he's been doing to cover his tracks and things like that. But then you have, for instance, the assassination at the opera, mm. or was not the opera is the point, it's at the... The hotel. The hotel de Triomphe, yeah. And then they're going on, and I've seen similar ideas in other films um, of what... You, you create one crime to cover the other. In this case, they're trying to cover the assassination of the guy that German industrialist, mm-hmm. Meinhardt. But, is it, but, what well, Which made no his sense killing to me. By, yes, exactly. They made, they covered his killing by killing a lot of people, so he'd have been dead anyway. That yes. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you. I thought I'd missed something. That's the yeah. one thing I took away from this was, wait a minute, I don't understand. Yeah. If he'd made it like, 
okay, we've made it so there's a gas explosion in the hotel and we shoot him to make sure that he dies. Mm. But there's a gas explosion that may or may not have killed other people, but that kind of covers that. Okay, so you don't realise it's an assassination. Yep. That I understand, but given they cover an assassination with another multiple assassination, I don't understand Yeah, because at first I thought I dozed off, and then the, the, the rationale I came to was like, oh, wait, I've, I, I sort of, I came to it, I was like, right, wait a minute, I've missed something here. And then I thought, oh, no, wait a minute, they detonated the bomb by shooting it. And then it makes clear, that, no, 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 we, we shot the guy, but then we set off a massive bomb that would have killed him along with the 30 other people yes, that it killed to cover up the fact that we shot him. <laughs> I don't remember coming out of the cinema confused about that at the time, but I really, really got taken aback by that. And it seemed odd in as much as they had the whole point of uh, Nomi Rapace's brother's arc is that they've been setting up anarchist bombs all over Europe, so there was already a cover story there already. Yes, yes as to, as to why that bomb would have been there, yeah. Didn't make a lot of sense. Um, mm. it, it is part of the... well. Apart, there's a lot of films that we say we could probably chop half an hour out of. Um, this is this would probably be another one if we're being. Oh fair, yeah, twenty. This needs twenty minutes lopping off it. Yeah, yeah and, and it, that, that's that would be a prime candidate for it. That seemed like it was just dragging things on without actually really propelling the plot. Yeah, yeah, it, and it, it was just. It only seemed to be there to give an idea that Moriarty's on the same level as uh, down, uh, Holmes's mm. plots, but it didn't do a great job of that. So yeah, it could probably have just done without it. It could probably have done as well without channeling Die Another Day and having the perfect facial surgery to mask <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, which is impossible to believe in Die Another Day, which was like the early 21st century. Um, or like, is it 1999? Yeah. Die Another Day? about then, anyway, 2001 maybe. Um, but something set in the 1890s, nah. Mm. <laughs> Bit of a stretch. But um, yeah, so I mean, there are minor issues. I still I find it very, very enjoyable. So, oh, um, yes, yes. Uh, and it's. It's very stylistic, but it's um, it doesn't. It's not too stylistic for as far as I'm. Lots concerned. of lots of unnecessary slow mo, but we can we can let it off with that. Yeah, and again, Robert Downey Jr.'s charisma goes such a long way as well to papering over most cracks. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And poor Gladstone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I'm quite hopeful about a third one now. But where it's been. It's going to be an eight or nine years between, so I hope they're not kind of lost the chemistry that clearly worked on the set. Yeah, yeah, that, that is one. That's I remember this being about the time when I actually came round to the fact that, I, that somehow I can quite like Jude Law. He's yeah. going through a period of I being exactly quite unlikable Scott. Uh, <laughs> and likable in a lot of films, but this actually shows oh, he's actually a, a likable human being. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> I don't know if I've changed. Like he does. Uh, there's a few I've found that I'm, I'm more tolerant of now, even going as far to have. Have you actually found Meryl Streep enjoyable on vacation? Which really shocked <laughs> me. Um, and I don't know if it's just maybe I've changed or maybe it's just they have changed in their, their acting style and abilities improved with age. I think it's certainly think that could be the case with Jude Law. Or maybe he's mm-hmm. taking different roles. But I remember the first time I really, I, like, I can't say I liked because the character was a bad person, but um, Road to Perdition. Mm-hmm. The first time mm-hmm. I thought, oh, maybe, maybe there's something to this Jude Law guy. But certainly by these two. Sherlock Holmes films, um, exactly the same as you sort of think, ah, yeah, I kind of like Jude Law, actually. <laughs> and it's, in the, it's one of the few things I actually cared much about in the new Fantastic Beasts film. Uh, mm-hmm. The character's motivations in the film made no sense, but I quite liked how Jude Law was playing <laughs> Dumbledore. Yeah. <laughs> think that wraps us up, then? Pretty sure it does. Right, well, yes, I think that'll do enough, enough Sherlock Holmes for one day. Um, I will just reiterate that if you do want to get something that is giving you a good taste of the books 
and also is a very enjoyable and a really great take on Sherlock Holmes as a character as well. The the ITV show, uh, Jeremy Brett's, you can probably find that on the internet. Type your nose. YouTube's a thing. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very well worth tracking down a few episodes and giving that a, a shot. Um, but yeah, both of these films I, I still hardly recommend anyway. But yes, yeah, so that'll do us for today. So thanks very much for your attention. We'll be back with you very shortly. But uh, until next time, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. Uh, Twitter, we're at Fudson Film, or facebook.com slash Fudson Film, or podcast at Fudson Film, or any other method you choose. Please do so. Yes. So take care of yourself and each other. I'll, I will bid you a fond farewell. I'm sure that Drew and Craig will do too. Mm. Okay.